Hey, welcome to the Today Dreamer podcast. I'm your host, Michael. I'm a meditation teacher, a musician, a mentor, and a conversationalist. And this project is here to help you cultivate the practice of presence so that you may more wholly be able to contribute and participate in the blossoming of the emergent world story. This is a very special episode for me. My mother passed away fairly recently on November 4th, 2021 at 5am and I'd like to dedicate this episode to you mum with the storm in my heart. So this episode is with Stephen Jenkinson and afterwards it left me with many questions and I felt like some things <laughs> felt confirmed but also there was quite a bit worth exploring further and I, you know, it would be really nice if that was the case with you as well. So there's an encouragement to take your time with this one and really allow yourself to absorb um, absorb it by kind of breathing into it nice and gently. So I've been thinking about one of the things was this idea of the blossoming aspect of, of the intention of the show, the contribution towards blossoming. And I kind of was looking into the life cycle of plants, you know, from seed to seedling to the seedling with leaves followed by a young tree, a growing tree, a mature tree, flowers, and then you know, potentially fruit. And I came across this little, little piece on the internet saying that stress-induced flowering is one of the responses to stress and is the ultimate stress adaptation because plants can survive as a species if they flower and produce seeds, even when they cannot survive as individuals under severe stress. I'm not so sure survival is the focus here, but it was an interesting consideration. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about Stephen. I'm going to go through his bio with you before we take a kind of breath of presence and then move into things. Culture activist, worker, author, Stephen teaches internationally uh, and is the creator and principal instructor at the Orphan Wisdom School, co-founded with his wife Natalie Roy in 2010. They convene semi-annually in Deakin, Ontario and in Northern Europe. He has a master's degree from Harvard in theology and the University of Toronto in social work. Apprenticed to a master storyteller when a young man, he was He's worked extensively with dying people and their families in, and is the former program director uh, in a major Canadian hospital, former assistant professor in a prominent Canadian medical school. He's also a sculptor, traditional canoe builder, and his house won a Governor General's Award for Architecture. Since co-founding the Knights of Grief and Mystery Project with singer-songwriter Gregory Hoskins in 2015, he has toured this musical tent show revival storytelling ceremony of a show across North America, UK, Europe, Australia, and New Zealand. They released their Knights of Grief and Mystery album in 2017, and at the end of 2020, they released two new records, Dark Roads and Rough Gods, which will be creatively fusing into this episode um, another encouragement to just kind of let go into them would be uh, something I would like to point towards and also to if you are interested in the work to go for a further exploration after the episode. He's the author of A Generation's Worth, Spirit Work While the Crisis Reigns, Come of Age, The Case for Elderhood in a Time of Trouble, and the award-winning Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. Homecoming, The Haiku Sessions, a live teaching from 2013, How It All Could Be, 
a workbook for dying people and those who love them. Angel and Executioner, Grief and the Love of Life. Money and the Soul's Desires, a meditation. Okay, so let's take a moment to just pause wherever you are. And just like we start every episode on this show, feel free to gently close your eyes or focus in on an object in the distance. And as slow as you may have ever done, see if you can take a gentle inhale through your nostrils. Whenever it may be that you reach the peak of this inhalation, there's an open invitation to just pause and notice the subtleties of your experience before just as gracefully releasing on the way out. You might like to repeat this process as we enter the initial stages of the conversation. You might like to repeat it all the way through. Here we go. We leave a hole when we come here. Then we leave a hole when we go. And then it happens again. And that's life. Now there at the beginning, it's all feminine. That's how wild it is. At first, every one of us is womankind. That's how life begins. For a second, before it breaks in two, it's one, the she of everything. Now, mankind's necessary, but we aren't inevitable, though. Something has to happen. Something has to change. Has to stop being what it was. Now, if you're born a girl child, you've a rumor swirling that you had a home and you had belonging once. And there's proof there inside you a rudiment of that old watery house there in your middle. And no matter what comes of it later, still will always be a sign that you came from somewhere, that you belong, that your longing belongs. Now you're born a boy, same rumor, but there's a feeling about a home and there's a sense that it's not always been this way. And that's all there is. And you will look for home forever thereafter. You may spend many of your days pleading for one woman at least to agree to be home. One or two may sit still long enough that it'll seem that way to you. But it won't last, son. It's not supposed to last. You know that. It's there in your sighing after love. So life goes. And there's a mournful little thing that happens in the life of a young boy. That motherly forever. Well, that lasts just long enough for you to miss it when it goes. And it goes. And that body the starred and storied vault of heaven, all you've ever known of the kind world, it turns from you, and it won't turn back. You hardly survive. And you, in your ragged sorrows, just then, are to make out love, just there, in the leaving. That kind of love is confusing for the stoutest hearts. And your boy's heart is not one of those. Life goes, and a generation later, more or less, your mother will have the ailments of age. The family will take turns worrying, learning drug names, visiting. And you'll grow used to that too. Endings are considered for a moment, then banished. 
you won't read the signs, not really. You'll have to be told. And you'll have to make up your mind that you're in an ending, a big one. Now your mother lays dying, freed by the war from the old decorum. She smoked in public because she could. Nobody talked about emphysema then, but you're talking about it now, though, with a nurse. She takes you into a room down the hall, in private. She tells you, you have to stop suctioning. You have to stop everything. She's emphatic. Tell your family. Make them understand. They have to stop. So you sit vigil one endless hour at a time. And then it ends. And she goes to the ground or to the flame. And the old hurt comes on now. And you're left to decide what everything means. Well, it means that you're an old orphan now. That's what it means. That kind of love life has for you is so confusing for the clearest running of hearts. And a man's heart, with his mother dead, is not one of those. There is an electrical storm that breaks out in the mind when parents die. Be they gentle or gigantic in you, be they kind, carnivorous, cantankerous, catastrophic or full of care. Whether some part of you flirts with relief at the thought of their death or is undone beyond surviving it still, when it comes, it lets loose a gale of life so adamant, so unnerving. The storm might seize a man by his breath, by the short hairs on his neck, by his very words, and it may not move on. And for a few hours, maybe a day or two, maybe a fortnight, that man may be more alive than he knows how to be. And his old strategies for safeguarding the borders of himself, they're dust now and no more. In the heat of all that, in the storm of the heart, well, you'll have your mother's wake. You have the heart of a boy and little else. You're a husk. And you'll have her wake. And there'll be the sleepwalk of stories and the I'm sorry for your loss and she's in a better place. But there, amongst the stories and the slow gin and the guests, there'll be the nurse that helped you more than you knew. Bring your mother across the line and see her down those long few days ago. You're a particular sort of man just now, an unguarded man. And she's seen so much of you, and she's a witness to that. So you'll fall to careful, whispered sorrows and thanks between you and stories from the long midnight wait and the vigil. And she is the truest woman that you've known just then. The only woman that you've been known by like that. And she knows that, or some of it. She can see something of you rise to her that you can't see and won't see. So the guests will leave to their lives and their ones and their twos, and she doesn't leave with them. You know next to nothing about the motherless magic of these days, but you know that she won't leave. You rise to put away the glasses, the bread, the wine, and there's the night there between you. 
a day and a night later, she goes through the door to her life. You won't see her again. For that great while, though, and for a short while after, well, you know something of how vast life really is, of how true the naked man and woman can be, how the homelessness can heal, how there's weather in love, and how it can be so confusing. Well, you know, first of all, the circumstance you've described with your mom, it's a, it's hallowed ground, yeah? No matter how you feel about it, uh, and you may come and go on your feelings about it, you know, from from uh, sort of neutrality or some sense of awe or wonder to some sense of personal liability in the matter, you know, and, and, and round and round. But that doesn't diminish its... Um, it's telluric uh, quality. So when you're when you're invited to uh, attend to someone else's uh, hallowed ground, it's best not to be too casual. It's best not to assume too much, and it's best not to walk first and think later. So with that in mind, uh, I'll start elsewhere and back towards the, the piece of ground that you've been articulating. You know, I mean, I'm as familiar as you are with the notion, uh, the fetching notion of potential. It's got a beautiful PR firm working for it, Potential does. It sounds good in every sense of the term. There doesn't seem to be any particular downside to the matter at all. You hold yourself to the notion of potential. You, you inevitably will arrive alive. <laughs> and... So you might guess from me saying it this way that I'm I'm probably not persuaded. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm so under persuaded by that notion that I I think I've given up on the notion of potential more or less entirely. I don't even think potential has potential to be frank. So so why would I be a hard ass on the matter? Well, largely it's because uh, two things. First of all, it participates in the same cheering section of the stadium as hope does, to my mind into my ear and I'm on record and I don't need to replay the whole sorry business of hope here now people can look it up if they're so inclined but needless to say that hope trades on the future that's its principal stock and trade it trades on a better future a better day etc now it's a it's a proper thing to yearn after and to want and all the rest but if you examine the function of hope the actual kind of existential architecture of the beast, you find that it tends to diminish, demean, and and uh, dispirit the present for the sake of that future. It already turns away or half turns away from the present moment because the present moment is clearly not good enough, not uh, delivering enough of the upside, not not worthy of our, you know, torment as well as our uh, the rest of our elements. In fact, the present is all we have, mister. The present is all we have. And it's not clear that we even have the present. Maybe that's not the best phrase. You could say the present makes a clear and distinct and um, and compelling claim upon us. And we either ignore that or we proceed accordingly. Uh, but there's there's no takers, by and large, in my experience, for the trail, travails, and the troubles of the times in the present moment. So I think as citizens of a troubled time, we owe the present our very best. And we owe the future um, a, a passing acknowledgement of its possibilities and no more. That's one. Here's two. This notion of potential life. Um, I worked with dying people frequently in the old days and amongst that group I worked with a lot of dying kids and I think it's important to note that um, working with dying kids there's easier ways to make a living than being in that particular trench with those people that degree of heartache and that degree of 
of almost phosphorescent grudge against the way it is, against life, against God, against the heartbeat, against everything. I don't say it's not understandable, but I, I question how wise it is to call down the mighty when things are despicably not going according to your plan. So I had to try to figure out what was mobilizing the parents of the dying kids most emphatically that nobody seemed to be too alert to that would admit to some kind of intervention on my part. And I think I've, I found it. Now there's more than what I found, but I certainly found this. And this you can take to the bank. The notion really was not that the child was dying. That was hard enough. The real grievance and grudge was they were dying at such a point and in such a circumstance that they wouldn't get to live a full life, i.e. that very potential you were talking about around the fire. Mm. So now, it's, it's worthy of simply considering. Rather than having an opinion about it, you could think about it instead and give your opinion a rest. And here's how you could do so. Has a seven-year-old leukemia patient had a full life? By what measure? Oh, any measure you want to take off the shelf. So let's pick the obvious ones. Will the seven-year-old ever have kids? Apparently not. Would that be a, an indicator of a full life? Well, for some. Okay, so it's it's hit or miss on the, on the full life spectrum. Anything else? Well, they won't hit puberty. Right, and everybody can't wait to hit puberty. And having done so, it's a laugh a minute, right? So, so there's that. Okay, what else? Um, uh, they, they look upon their parents as equals. What seven-year-old seeks after equality with their parents? They're not missing any of these things. They simply won't live them out. But the notion that they're being dealt a poor hand or that they're being ripped off by eternity because they don't get to do everything. Whose notion is this? Where? What kind of consumer galaxy does this come from that the only justifiable, legitimate, and, and, and just encounter we have with life is the one where there's very few limits and frailties and endings. So I submit to you that a seven-year-old leukemia patient is capable of living a full life in, and I'll go on a limb here and be personal for a second, in a fashion that you have outlived yourself. But just by virtue of your age. Like me, you were trained out of the capacity to live a full life sometime during your encounters with puberty and deep socialization in the schoolyard and that, that sort of business. Right? You had to give up all that stuff and you, you probably did so more or less, um, gladly because participation in the greater throng was worth giving up your capacity to live a full life and signing up for the grudge match called being all you want to be or getting everything that you want. So a seven-year-old has no such capacity to turn on life that way because they haven't been turned on by life by virtue of dying before the age of eight. So if this is true when you're seven, is it less true when you're 47? It's a good thing to wonder about. I mean, you're less capable of living a full life at 47. Hmm. You need some serious reminding of the kind of nascent wisdom that was available to you. I shouldn't even call it wisdom because it wasn't earned exactly. At the age of seven, <laughs> you, don't, you don't really have the possibility of turning away from that kind of life wisdom because there is no alternative for a while, you see. And finally, when you learn how to be normally unhappy with the rest of us older people, um, this is a scant and faint memory, this idea that you live fully and utterly and inhabited the moment so fiercely that you could teach any existentialist a good lesson. Why in the dark, dear heart, have you come see me? Why in the world won't you say? Oh uh -huh.
I feel like the children have a lot of lessons to teach and just kind of um, kind of bearing witness to how how everything unfolded with mom around my son actually um, was quite it was quite difficult um, I guess a question comes up around whether you've ever had to speak to children about another one's death and how you may have approached something like that i i it was it's difficult to to feel into whether you're doing things right or, or wrong as a parent um, i think it, honestly it's the wrong question to ask yourself or the wrong kind of standard to hold yourself to mm. not that there's not such a thing as terrible things to say mm. there clearly are but i'm not sure if there's a quote right thing to say but i could you know, I could weigh in on the subject a little bit here now and suggest a couple of, of tangential things for you that in, in, with the benefit of hindsight might have been useful to you once upon a time or depending on your son's age might still be. So here's one. We often mistake the errant attention span of a child for aversion. That's not necessarily what it is. I mean, the child has not learned that 47 minutes of uninterrupted attention span is a good thing to have. Right? They'll give you 18 seconds, depending on what the matter is at hand. They might give you, you know, 43 seconds. But after that, you're just going to the hardware store for bread now. If you want them to be able to stay with you, you see. So if they're not staying with you when you're trying to talk about the death of a of another human, be they a child or a grandparent, whatever it is, uh, you could easily be led down the garden path of thinking that you just haven't found the right thing to say. And when you do, they'll be all ears for the duration of your speech. So you can tell what I'm saying here. I'm saying that a child has no investment in these long-term um, elaborations. Right? They have no investment in talking about their feelings with the kind of uh, elaboration of, of emotive field that you're looking for that not very secretly you're depending on 
to persuade you that you're saying the right thing. Mm. After all, an encounter like this is not a place for you to feel a little bitter about yourself as a father. Mm -hmm. You may, and that'd be great. But you don't hold your child to ransom in order to make you feel more adequate. So for many adults, uh, many kids do a good impersonation of a Rubik's Cube. All these constituent parts. And if you just flick them in the right way, you just move them just so you're going to get the face of Jesus in the cube or whatever it is you're after. So here's what I'm saying. A kid's not a Rubik's Cube, obviously, nor is a kid a problem to solve. Yeah. So if the stance is you sit across from them trying to figure out how to best impart this information in such a way that's not traumatizing at the same time it grips them to their mighty core. Yeah. You might be asking the wrong thing. You might, you, your whole game could be wrong. Why? Because it's not predicated on, on you know, what the, the living life of a child requires. It's predicated on trying to feel that you're doing the right thing for that living life of that child. So if you, if you cease and desist on the notion that a child is a problem to solve, the first thing you change is your seating arrangement. How so? Well, you don't sit across from them, making them the object of your inquiry, you see, and then testing them ongoingly with little litmus tests of, uh, of sensibility for whether or not they're getting an understanding and tracking and following and, 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 and uh, indulging you and the rest. So what it's did? Well, don't sit across from them anymore to the point where you can't, from where you sit, you can't actually quite see them very clearly. And where would that be? Oh, something like uh, 45 degrees off center from them. So they're looking across the front of you and you're looking across the front of them. And wherever those two gazes intersect, that's the focus of your attention. Not the child, where the two gazes intersect, see? And in so doing, what you'll be able to do with great practice, I should say, is you'll be able to see perhaps not the child so much, but what the child sees. You mean see from their point of view? No, not exactly, because it's still the world. See, it's not them. You keep trying to slip that in, but it's not them that should be the focus of the encounter any longer. It should be the mystery. And the two of you should not be on opposite sides of the mystery. You should be gathered together in its name. You see, that's what you're there for. To, to pay more than lip service to the fact that stuff happens in this world that nobody really understands if they're telling the truth, especially grown-ups. So then how do you, I mean, it's a terrible word, I hate the word, but how do you model the notion that adults have as much obligation to submit to mystery and the inscrutable as kids do, but you do. You do. This is what kids need to learn more than anything else, is they can trust the ambivalence and uncertainty of grown-ups because grown-ups have learned how to be properly ambivalent. But I haven't met many who know how. And so kids, properly so, they hold adult certainty and at the same time in some weird high esteem, but at a, at a bit of a distance as well, because they're not inclined to imitate it. Not for a while. I mean, eventually, we all learn how to talk that talk, but, but out of the gate, not so much. So in a nutshell, that's how you do it. What, you, what comes out of your mouth, well, I mean, you're going to have to live with it, right? Hopefully, you've really thought about it, and you've thought about the filters it passes through to get to your lips, and what you're after, what your expectations are. See, but if you get... 14 seconds on the finality of death with a seven or a 10 year old, that's pretty good for all concerned. They don't need more than 10 seconds of the finality of death. They don't need to be able to be engaged in, you know, high emotive, rational conversation with you on the matter. I mean, you can't get many adults to do that with you. You certainly can't ask it of a, of a minor, right? But what you can do 
is show them that while the mystery is concerning and confounding, it's not fear-inducing by nature. It's awe-inspiring instead. So you as a grown-up, or as a father in this case, have an obligation to practice awe with your kid looking on. This idea that you've mentioned a few times um, throughout you know, your books and your talks is this idea of that wisdom can't be inherited. When you first mentioned that, that kind of twisted my noodle a little bit because I was, I was, it made a lot of sense, but I'd never thought about it like that. Right. I guess a question that came up for me is how, how do you actually approach your, your disciplined inquiry? How do you get to something in that space? You know, where, where does, where does, what is your wondering, you know, where does that, where does that, what does that feel and look like for you? And, um, and, and yeah, how did you, how did you find that space? I guess were some curiosities that came up. Well, it feels like the last, uh, you know, excluding the, our interruption, it feels like what I've been doing since I said hello to you. You're looking at me doing it. This is what it sounds like. This, this is what the approach is. A disciplined inquiry animates the question with something more than a demand to know. What it animates it with is a proper and high regard for the rest of the story that's not become apparent or manifest. You familiar with the piece I did in, uh, with my band called Hippie Radio? Did you hear that? Mm -hmm. I think I heard that one, yep. There it is. The whole thing's mm -hmm. in there. Mm, okay. The notion that there's there's a sound that a song makes after it's finished. Mm -hmm. And it's a strange idea. You have to listen for it. You can't go on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. You have to stay there. See? But if you do, you'll encounter something remarkable that the song was not complete until after it ended. Its completion, if you will is the silence that follows upon it and your willingness to abide by and in that silence. That's the discipline inquiry, just manifest differently in terms of listening and not trying to move on and not trying to get more. See, how did I quote find it? Um, well, you know, the, these things, you shouldn't speak with so much authority about your own little wrinkles, right? You, you haven't really known any different. I mean, there was a time when I had no notion whatsoever of what we're talking about now. And then at a certain point I did. I'm grateful for the change, you know, without feeling an obligation to be absolutely merciless in my being able to track exactly how it took place. Okay. But I know this, I know that when I was very young, uh, perhaps even in the womb, but certainly thereafter, I was read to very frequently. And uh, I was read to to the point where I remember whoever's reading going unconscious, you know, with the umpteenth ver uh, rendering of the particular story that I wanted to hear again. And there's something in my in ongoing and very young encounter with the, the lope and the cadence of... Uh, of storytelling that has never left me, that it really manifests how I think, not what I think about, but the manner by which I think about things. And rather than coming to it as a lawyer might, trying to find the weaknesses and you know the frailties in the argument or a way in which you could prevail or something like this, I'm, I'm seeking to be persuaded not convinced, persuaded by the storiness of something. And I guess the thing that compels me about it most is, um, you know, I went to university. I mean, I can talk the talk. I can, I can do that problem-solving thing if needs be. I can be uh, um, petulant with the best of the legal minds, you know. 
I don't hold it in particular high esteem, but I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that the skill is there. But here's one of the things I discovered. It must have been before I went to Harvard, but it was certainly manifest there at Harvard University. That uh, when, you, when you engage fellow human beings at the level of argument and diatribe and contentiousness, which does sound familiar given what's going on today, then one of the things that happens is your, your memory is deeply challenged to try to recreate the, uh, the flashpoints, the, uh, the what got you going, the, uh, the argument at its you know, whitest, white hottestness, that kind of thing. Why? Well, there's something about contentiousness and argument that the mind was built to be able to do, but the mind is not built of argument. The thinking, the thinking apparatus is not built out of contentiousness. It's built out of curiosity and, and pattern recognition and uh, a longing after a deeper participation in the thing that's not quite giving itself away, otherwise known to you as story, you see. So I think the way it works is this. The reason you can't remember how the argument went, including the romantic circumstance arguments, you can't really remember. You remember that you're willing to live or die because of the argument, but you don't remember what the argument was about, really. And you certainly couldn't replay it. Why not? Because you're not built that way, that's why. But try to tell a story that you can't remember almost any aspect of. And you know what happens when you start telling it? It starts telling itself through the kind of lateral associations that you begin to make. And oh yeah, there, there was this thing, I don't know how it, whether it came before or after. And then you, you tell it. And in the act of telling it, lo and behold, doesn't the story begin to appear? And why do you suppose that is? I think the answer is pretty obvious. That's what you're built of. That's how you're made. You were made by your parents telling a story to each other that turned into you. Not just their parenting style, but even before you were conceived, if you were imagined, if you were planned in some fashion, if you were you know, worried over, if you were fretted after, if you were avoided at all costs, still, there's all kind of story that's gathering around the you that's not there yet. Now tell me that's not a pretty cool story too. <laughs> I don't think I can do that. <laughs> Yeah. So is this kind of partly why the reason when you had your school that you would kind of, um, you know, invite students to, to take note of things that were happening in the world around them? Is this kind of, are these like kind of noticings um, part of that kind of story forming process? Yes. Although I would put it a little more strongly than you did. I didn't advocate that they take note of the world around them. I would assume, given the fact that they're coming to a school that I'm doing, that they're probably already in that business. Mm -hmm. Because okay. they couldn't really justify being in my school for and do anything less than that. But what I did in particular was ask them to take note and keep track of what I called signs of the end times. And this is before the COVID thing. Sometimes you look really smart in hindsight, right? So that's what I did. And I, I wasn't, I, in, in using the term, I wasn't using it like a Fifth-day Adventist, a Pentecostal, or a born-again, anything in particular. I was using it with an understanding that there are certain indicators of where you are in the likelihoods that surround you. You, are, you have no business being overly truant on the matter of where in the arc of your particular civilization you might be. It's important that you be alerted to the likelihoods. The fact that they don't come from central command, that it's not nailed to the sky for everybody to see, doesn't let you or me off the meat hook of being an ordinary civilian in a troubled time and assuming that obligation. And so one of the practices you can begin to cultivate is rather than having feelings about this notion of end times, which I didn't invent the term, by the way, right? I'm just borrowing it. 
rather than having feelings about it, dread or relief or <laughs> whatever it might be. I'm not talking, I didn't say track your feelings about the end times. I said, track the signs. The notion is that there's a world out there beyond the frontier of your feelings. Go there. Can you talk to me a little bit more about why? Why go there? Yes. Well, I mean, your whole life has been lived in the presence of a of a civilization that has failed to do so in any kind of consistent way. So, uh, you know, my question is right back to you. How do you think it's working so far mm. to work on the level of potential and be a better you and uh, personal growth and development and yes. how's it working? Yeah. I don't need to make the case that it's mm. not working. I don't mm. have that obligation or responsibility. Mm. You know, I'll, pu I'll put it to you another way. When I worked in the death trade, Let's say at any given day, 500 people were diagnosed with dust and so in the greater metropolitan zone where I was working. And let's say of those people, 499 of them died on schedule, like within the reasonable expectation that they were provided at, when they were told the prognosis. Let me tell you what story gets told over and over and over again in the name of being helpful and supportive and positive. You know what I'm going to tell you, the story of that one person who didn't die on schedule. Now, I'm not saying there's no such thing as that one person. Of course there is. There's probably more than one, but you take the point I'm making here. So I, I reasoned it this way. I think my responsibility is to see to it that the stories of the 499 who died on schedule are told. And everybody else can hold tight to their bosom the story of the one who defied all the odds and is still alive. So along with this kind of um, suggestion or recommendation or, or kind of invitation to the students, were there other ways in which you kind of um, opened the door or the window, however you want to put it, to the ideas of, um, you know, coming closer to the harsh realities that we're kind of embedded in and, and, and bringing them closer and feeling more deeply into them? Um, or recognizing them with more kind of clear eyes, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's a good question. Um, I don't think my principal uh, obligation in the 10 years that I did the school or when I do the school and uh, I, again, after three years interruption, starting, I think it's tonight. It's today, Wednesday or Tuesday. Today's Tuesday. A week tomorrow, the school starts again for the first time in several years. And I'm, I'm out of practice, but I'm not out of tune. So I'm, I'm very keen and, 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 and ready. Able will see, but certainly ready for it. So I didn't advocate um, getting close to the troubles of the times as a point of dogma. You know, it's not an idea. What I did was I practiced doing so in front of them, with them, and to a certain degree, to them, at them upon them and then ultimately you know no i mean arguments are futile in that matter recommendations are futile but practice may not be and then ultimately you have to leave the consequences of the practice that you demonstrate to the the uh constituent neurological parts of the people you're dealing with you're talking to your you feel an obligation to as a result of them coming to your school. I never thought I had an obligation to reassure people that things are going to be okay if we just fill in the blank. I don't consider that to be adult behavior, to be honest. It's a, it's a kind of citizenship malpractice, I think. You know, we're, we're truly in the shit, man. If you don't start there, you haven't started. If you're running down the world road to solutions, you know, tech abiding solutions for tech driven problems, just to take the obvious, um, you know, you can, you can claim you're working on behalf of a better day, but I don't know how, I don't know how you're, you're, you're a solution junkie. 
when your real your real Jones should be trouble, not beam me up, Scotty. Not uh, you know. Here's a little song I wrote. You might like to play it note for note. Don't worry, be happy. But honestly, it takes a a certain kind of grown up stamina, doesn't it, to do what we're talking about now? Because uh, isn't that tr true? Hasn't it been your experience that an awful lot of people want to be rewarded for taking taking it in the teeth in terms of how we're doing in the Western world? That people want a reassurance that there's an upside to doing so, and they want that reassurance to be there before they really submit themselves to the to the hard ass you know, sort of uh, corroded steel edge of what we've done with the numerous possibilities that have been entrusted to us? I think the answer is yes. Thank you for your participation in this episode of the Today Dreamer podcast. I'll leave links on our beautiful guest in the show notes section on the website where you can check out all their wonderful work and offerings. And if you're interested in working one-on-one -on -one with me, feel free to head over to todaydreamer.com and get in touch. Also, if you're a part of the Today Dreamer family, which really only means that you've listened to one full episode and you'd like to go deeper to at least one full episode, then um, and you'd like to participate in some group meditation sessions online that I'm offering for free only to listeners of the show, then please send me an email through the contact form on the website. I'll add you to the list and um, I'll give you all the details to that and any other upcoming kind of offerings around helping your development in this space. Thank you so much again. And until next time, uh, be present, feel alive and yeah, be well. <laughs>